Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Good morning, everybody. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Uh, joining me today are two car experts, if I may say. Chris Barbieri is joining us by phone. He was just on the show a week or so ago talking about uh, living in China and his work experience in China, plus the tours that he does. And Joel Nadjman, we just heard about on the on the commercial, Growing in the Garden. That's great, Joel. And I'm, uh, you're in studio, correct, Joel? That is correct here in our lavishly appointed WDEV studios. I was thinking of doing a show, walking around and pointing out to people what the heck is on that shelf on the top there. I don't think those things have moved for a few years. Well, I tell you, we've got uh, some first edition cans of roadkill stew <laughs> and uh, some of the uh, famous, well, uh, uh, it goes downhill from there, put it that yes, way. Yes, it does. My favorite is the peeps. <laughs> if you touch those peeps, they have been open and up there, what, 20, 30 years? They are like cement. And I figure if there's ever a, a, a something of violence in the studio, I'm using them for self-defense. There you because go. Because they knock you out in two seconds. They're a riot. <laughs> anyway, I'm so glad you both joined us because um, tomorrow begins the 66th annual Vermont Antique and Classic Car Meet, which runs from Friday, August 11th to Sunday, August 13th. And it's sponsored uh, by the Classic and Antique Car Club, uh, which is known as the Vermont Automobile Enthusiasts. And both Chris and Joel are very active in those in that club. And, um, uh, oh, and it, it says it's the largest antique and classic car club in Vermont. So, Chris, could you um, talk about the club and what it takes to put this show on for six? I don't think you were doing it for 66 years, but who knows? Well, yes, thanks. Thanks, Pat. Uh, the club goes back to 1953, and the show began in, uh, doing shows began in 1957. So uh, we have a long history, uh, both of a, of a club, uh, an antique and classic uh, club, plus we have a long history in the show itself. And uh, we've had the show, we had the show in Stowe until six years ago when we lost the location that we were at. And uh, Waterbury uh, was interested in having the show come to Waterbury, and uh, so we took the invitation, and uh, we're now on Far Field. This will be our sixth year on Far Field. And um, it's really been a plus for us to have the show at Far Field for a whole lot of reasons. Um, the location in Stowe was great, but it was hilly, and if it rained, it was kind of muddy. <laughs> Where we are now at Far Field, it's a little perfectly level, and um, it's large, larger than we had in Stowe. And if it does rain, the, um, the field drains pretty quickly. So we've got more room uh, for more antique and classic cars uh, that we had before. So uh, all in all, this has been really good. Uh, the club itself, as I mentioned, started in 1953. Uh, we have periodic, um, usually monthly meets. We uh, have uh, tours we take for club members with our cars. Uh, we donate money to a whole lot of of interest groups uh, promoting uh, kids to get 
technical studies, automobile tech, uh, technology classes. So, you know, we support a lot of, of uh, operations and things to do that's, uh, that are connected with the, with the club and with, with antique autos. Uh, and promoting, as I just mentioned, having uh, youngsters who are in school, high school in particular, to continue uh, with their automobile technology classes and continue that uh, into the future. And we do have scholarships that will support that as well. That's great. I think you have a wonderful annual dinner, too. I've been to that once or twice. That is a great event. So that's, uh, that's for anybody and everybody who has done anything to help this show. Um, and, yeah, it, we do it annually uh, for all those folks. And there are so many people uh, that are involved in the show. It's, we have a committee of about 25 members of the club that are, are tasked with putting on the show every year. So we'll take a month uh, off after the show, and then in uh, October we'll start right back again uh, planning for next year's show. Okay. So it, it involves an, an enormous amount of people, really, because it's not just uh, the committee that's involved. It's the workers who put, put the field together. Uh, it's getting everything that has to go into it, the, uh, the food, the food vendors, uh, the porta potties, uh, the, the flea market, uh, the car corral, uh, and registration, um, pre-registration, of course. But we also have registration right at the field. Uh, so, so there's really uh, hundreds of people that are involved. I would say at least 100 people directly involved in putting this show together. Well, it's so well run. Um, it's a great show. I was going to ask if you start the next day, but it sounds you take a month off. That's a good thing. You're probably exhausted. Um, and I'm, I love Far Field. That's, I had an experience with my motorcycle a day after it rained in Stowe. That was very challenging, um, getting through that parking lot with my motorcycle. Um, but anyway, Joel, do you have anything to add to what Chris just said about, uh, well, about it's a, all the work that the club does? Oh, it's a wonderful show. I should put it in advance. I'm pretty much an ex-officio member of uh, the club these days, haven't been uh, active in the last uh, number of years since my uh, <clears throat> since my family really doesn't have the same interest in uh, the car club that, that uh, I had at the time. And, of course, during the course of the show, I'm on the radio playing car songs. We'll be doing that all Saturday. And then uh, Saturday evening, uh, we've done it in a number of different locations over the years. But uh, we'll, this year, we'll be it'll be a street dance, the uh, rock and roll street dance from 7 to 10 Saturday. So kind of hard for me to bring a car, but I, I hope we have time during this hour for me to share a couple of those stories of my 1950 Studebaker. That is the vehicle oh. that I yeah, bring to the uh, car show. And uh, if you have a moment right now, I'd like to tell you the one that <laughs> kind of yep, made yep, history right here. I think uh, I, I, I think your your husband probably issued a warrant for me out at, <laughs> at the time. Um, th- my ni- I have a 1950 Studebaker Commander four door sedan. It's the middle sized uh, Studebaker car. It had the uh, the six cylinder engine, the bigger six, the truck engine, which made it really hard to find parts for because uh, a lot of people had Studebaker trucks back in the day, and the bigger engine. Uh, they all the all the truck owners <laughs> got all the new old stock parts that I need. But at any rate, picture me with a green 1950 bullet nose Studebaker heading from Colchester, where I live, to um, at the time the field in Stowe, 
and a couple of problems with the car, one of which was I had a short in the horn. Every time I'd hit a bump, uh, my horn would go off a little bit, like blip, blip, honk, honk. I hit a bump, honk, 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 honk. So, uh, hmm, I got a, you know, something shorting out. So anyway, the day of the show, okay, uh, Thursday or Friday, I'm driving early in the morning, uh, and suddenly just before Richmond, I hit a bump, and the horn goes on and stays on. And this is a loud, loud horn in this Studebaker. And I'm going through Richmond, and it's amazing. And I'm on Route 2, by the way. I'm not going to take this thing on the interstate. I know better than to do that. I fully expected to encounter something uh, with my car. So I'm on Route 2. All the lights go on in the houses. Every house I pass, and as I look back in the rearview mirror, the lights went on. <laughs> and it was so loud that eventually I had to try and open the hood, but it was so loud, my head was spinning, and I knew I was hurting my hearing, so finally I got some blankets out of the trunk, wrapped them around my head, and was grabbing wires, hoping I don't pull any wires out that, that the car needed to run, but finally got that horn, but boy, I tell you, there was that one day, uh, you know, some 20-some-odd years ago, that I woke up everybody along Route 2 <laughs> from, uh, from about, uh, you know, from uh, Bolton to... Uh, just past Richmond. And, and, you know, Joel, there's something about uh, cars from the, particularly cars from, I would say, 1946 to maybe 1970, the horns are really loud. Oh, oh right. That is funny. I'm sure they didn't think it was funny, but it is funny. Well, you know, I, I've had so many stories with that Studebaker, another short one. It wasn't the car show parade. Uh, for the uh, uh, for the uh, ed, uh, for the Vermont automobile enthusiast, it was July July Fourth parade in um, in Colchester, and uh, my gas tank gauge did not work, and I had to estimate how much uh, gasoline I, I had, and I knew I was low, but I figured for a parade I'd be able to make it. What I didn't count on, and I had my my uh, two daughters; they were very young at the time, so they're. Uh, my uh, my daughter now is uh, 36, so it's uh, so you know 30 years ago. Um, they were in the car with me, and I go. But we had to wait a long time before we got in line in the parade. And there I am idling it, and of course I'm not going to turn the doggone thing off. I had to use some of the spray starter fluid in the carburetor to get the thing going in the first place. So needless to say, <clears throat> I run out of gas in the middle of a parade. And uh, my daughters both jump out of the car, and they had friends, uh, a fellow who owned a, an, an antique uh, military jeep in front of us. They joined their friends uh, in that car, so they abandoned the old man in his car. <laughs> but fortunately, let me salute the Vermont National Guard. Their vehicles were behind me, and the uh, commander ordered a couple of the uh, guardsmen to push me for the whole rest of the parade. Oh, how wonderful is that? <laughs> so there you go. That's I mean, and I, I mentioned that because, uh, you know, our listeners, if anybody wants to call in with their stories, because uh, it's not only the things that go wrong, it just happens to be in my world, but uh, so many wonderful stories about the automobiles that they have and they love. And I tell you, I love this 1950 Studebaker so, so very much. I can't imagine parting with it when I was a kid. My dad had a 1950 Commander, pretty much the same 
different style, smaller body style. And then I bought this one, and Chris, you would appreciate this. I bought this from Archie Meyer in Winooski. The Archie Meyer Studebaker dealer in Winooski was where the car was originally sold in 1950, and uh, some... Uh, you know, 30 years later, Archie still had his garage with all the parts in it, and he still had three or four cars in that garage, and this was one of them, and he sold it to me. Wow, that's, great. that's a great hey, Chris, story. How many Mopars yeah, do you have these days? Do you have a few in your in your yard? Who, talking yeah, to me? I'm sorry, Pat, me? Yeah, Chris, I'm Chris on Mopars. He's, he's the Mopar oh. man. Yeah, yeah he's yeah. Mopar. He and my husband. I'm, do you have that's a right. Mopar I'm a Mopar guy, and, um, yeah, I've got... I'm really into the era of the 1960s, and uh, so I've got a 63 Valiant station wagon, which is very rare. I mean, they made a lot of of Valiant and Falcon and Corvair station wagons back in the 60s, but station wagons in those days, they were the lowest price ones, and they were beat, generally speaking. You know, they took kids to 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 school and vacation and all that stuff. So those cars um, are hard to find today that are in good condition. And this little station wagon I've got is just a dream. It's only got 40,000 miles on it, and uh, it's it's just perfect in so many ways. So what I do is I bring it to the show, and I put um, a whole bunch of uh, thermostat, of uh, thermo bottles and, and uh, thermo uh, jugs and all that kind of stuff on the back of it. And it's pretty cool. But it's, so I have a 64 Valiant. Uh, convertible that uh, is used a lot. It's in the it's in the Waterbury parades and it's it's in the other parades and so on. And I drive that car around a lot. Um, and then there's a '65 Barracuda, which I will have at the show. Actually, I spent most of yesterday getting it all cleaned up and ready to go. That'll be at the show. Um, and I have a '66 Barracuda also, and then a '67 Barracuda convertible. So. Uh, I'm stuck in with Mopars in the middle '60s, but you know those cars are—they're easy to get parts for still. And uh, when you drive them, there's something about you know just turning on the radio, listening to Joel playing the old songs, and uh, you know you're in hog heaven. Maybe um, we could focus a little bit on the schedule because you guys have done an amazing job. There's—it's chock full of stuff to do. Um, Joel, maybe you could just start us off with Friday, and then we'll ask Chris to do Saturday, and then you can do Sunday again. Okay. Well, of course, people can go online and uh, get all the information uh, on that uh, with regard to the activities. But uh, coming up on on Friday, let's see if I have it in front. Maybe maybe we'd better start with uh, with Chris on Friday, and I'll pick it up after that. Oh, here we. I have it here. Okay, uh, <laughs> seven a.m. The uh, spectator gate uh, opens and the food concessions are open. This is Friday, August 11th, uh, d- uh, tomorrow. And, of course, the registration for the vehicles between 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. And uh, this is $35 if uh, paid in advance, but since we've gone past that, $45 at the meet to register your car. So, um, and uh, many of these uh, cars are going to be judged for the various categories and trophies. So the car like mine, when I brought it, I always made sure I had that do not judge sign on there because <laughs> people that have original cars, people that have uh, beautifully restored cars, obviously are competing for the, uh, you know, the, uh, for the trophies and awards in the various categories. But 
you know, it's perfectly all right to bring your car just for the fun of it. And that's what I had, you know, that's what I had. I love talking about cars, my own and uh, about others, and I've yet to meet anybody that wouldn't bend your ear uh, telling us about uh, the history of the car that they brought to the show, whether it's one to be judged or not. The flea market, which is wonderful, not only automobile things, it was mainly automobile things. I I would look at uh, old National Geographics and find an ad for the car, for one of the cars that I owned or wished I I owned. I always love the print advertisements. So the flea market is open for business. If you need a, uh, from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., if you needed parts for your car, Chances are you'll find them there, and uh, there are a number of concessions. I know if you have popular cars like like Ford V8s, uh, the old Ford V8s and the Model As, even the Model Ts, uh, there are aftermarket parts, and there are vendors that have virtually everything, a lot of the smaller parts they have there, and um, you know you can order many of them from there and make important contacts. And what I always like is the car corral. Probably, if I'm uh, able to make it, I'm 79 years old right now. Uh, my wife says, uh, you know, in your 80s, you're going to have to haul a couple of these things to the car corral, which is where you can purchase a car, an antique car, or sell one, as is going to be the case for me. Car corral space is available for $40 per vehicle at the show. And uh, they have to be drivable or at least on some kind of trailer that you can bring into the car corral. Do I have much of that right, Chris? Yes, you do, Joe. Absolutely. So then get heading into Saturday, uh, the gates open at 7 a.m. to spectators. And uh, 8 o'clock to 5 o'clock, the show is on uh, with the vehicles on display at the show. Of course, and uh, the big one of the big things in the day is the parade, which leaves the field at 3:30 and uh, goes down Route 2 to Waterbury Main Street, and down through uh, Main Street all the way down to the railroad station where we make a U-turn, and then uh, the cars can either go back to the field or or go to back to their motel room or whatever they want to do, um, and then the. The fashion show uh, also is on uh, Saturday, and that's where where uh, folks wear the uh, attire and what we might say is the costume of what the, matches the car. So if you have, let's say, a 1948 Ford, uh, you <clears throat> wear the clothes that were appropriate to be worn at that period of time. And, and that's a judging show, so uh, you've got to get it right when you do it. Uh, we have Hot Wheels racing, racing on um, on uh, Saturday morning as well, and uh, senior class judging and the parade. Uh, as I mentioned a little earlier, the parade is a big deal. Uh, the streets of Waterbury downtown are full of folks uh, enjoying the cars going by, down to the railroad station, and then that's it. i got to tell you a quick story, though. Last year uh, in the parade, my son-in-law and myself, are in my Valiant, my little Valiant, and we're going along in the parade, and we go under the trestle, the railroad trestle, and there were a lot of people on both sides of the road. And ahead of us is a 1955 Ford station wagon, a Woody. And uh, one of our club members uh, has that car. He's had it for many years, and it's a beautiful 55 Ford station wagon. So he's going ahead of uh, us in my car, and out of the side comes a woman pointing at the Ford station wagon, and she yells, My God, 
I, I lost my virginity in a car just like that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so you never know. Uh, when you're in that parade, you never know what's going to happen. Um, but anyway, Saturday is, is a great day. And, of course, we top it off at the end of the day with Joel uh, from 7 to 10 uh, in the rock and roll era and uh, with uh, Stowe Street as a dance uh, venue right. for us. So it's, it's, a, it's really a, a great street uh, dance that evening. Seven to ten, and uh, it's it's a Saturday is the most active day of the show. Uh, there's a lot of things going on, uh, you know, to, not just with the cars. We we have a crafters tent at the show where a lot of folks, uh, Vermonters, with their crafts doesn't have to be associated with the cars. It can be anything, uh, portraits or clothing or whatever that uh, what you uh, you know would be appropriate for the for the crafters tent. So um, there's a lot of things that are happening uh, at the show, not not just the cars. Uh, there's tons of food <laughs> and the flea market. Uh, Joel, I think you mentioned that earlier. The flea market is huge. It's one of the biggest antique uh, car um, car corral, not car corral, I'm sorry, of uh, flea markets, automobile flea markets in New England. There's just a lot of car stuff there. And uh, like Joel said, it doesn't have to be exactly everything, old car stuff, but uh, 99% of it is. So if you're looking for anything from maps to wheel covers to you name it, and you'll probably find it in that in that flea market. So there's a lot that goes on, not not just on Saturday, but uh, Friday all the way through yeah. Sunday. So I wanted to ask um, either one of you, what is the youth judging program? I see it on the schedule for Saturday, and I was curious about that. I can answer that. Um, okay. We judge 24 classes of vehicles, and uh, there are folks that, come in and would like to be judged good chance that they will win the trophy we do one two and first second and third uh so we have judges for that purpose obviously and um we do work with those um judges who are or folks who want to be judges um to learn how to do it and how to do it correctly uh, it's not easy to be a judge because if you're looking at a car that's supposed to be as original, you know, you have to know what all of that means. So we do judge training, um, and as I mentioned, all of the 25 classes of vehicles, and that includes motorcycles, uh, have first, second, and third um, trophies that they will receive uh, once the judges turn in their decisions. So judging is important, and uh, we take it seriously, and that's the reason that we have those those um, opportunities to learn how to judge. That's a great idea. I had no idea. That's wonderful. Good for you. Um, what are the ages of the kids? Are they from the tech schools uh, mostly? Uh, no. Um, we we encourage uh, kids from really from any, if they're interested in, in automobiles and, in, and have an interest in Particularly old automobiles. Uh, yeah, we're, we are. You know, this is really an, an, an effort to make sure that younger generations appreciate antique and classic automobiles. And uh, it, it's been a it's been a popular uh, opportunity for the kids to get to learn some some uh, uh, judging skills and so on. So yeah, that's part of it. And we, there's a lot that goes on in this show more than just the cars themselves. Well, you can you can see that, and obviously a lot of work. I know Bruce used to 
uh, wait to get his call from Lloyd Harvey every year when they'll be asked to judge. Um, and uh, so, Joe, maybe you could take us through um, Sunday. That's the big day. Uh, you know, a lot of times when you go to a, a show and it's, uh, you know, Thursday through Sunday, you know, a lot of people tend to leave early on Sunday. Not so at this car show, you know, specifically for the premier vehicles that are on the uh, on the field, those that are being judged in all the various categories that Chris was outlining, because they have to be at the field at 9.30 in the morning. So I know there are a lot of families that, uh, you know, you may not be able to come Friday, you have other plans on Saturday. Get there early on Sunday, and those cars that are in competition for the judging will be there, because the judging doesn't begin until uh, 9 o'clock, and everybody that is judged has to be there by 9.30, and then... In the uh, afternoon, the awards are given. So pretty much uh, early morning until 12 noon, uh, you will find uh, the lion's share of the creme de la creme of the cars there at the show. So that's really good. Uh, the senior awards, uh, followed by the class awards, again, they, they happen in the early afternoon, and most people just hang around to see that. And, of course, past the judging station, all the winners, uh, uh, you know, proudly pass by and uh, receive their awards. It's quite something, and it's also one of the best photo opportunities because it's nice to see those cars moving. They were made to be driven, aren't they, Chris? Yes, they sure were. Uh, when when we get a registration uh, for a car, we ask if they like to be judged or not, and um, it's really saved a lot of time. In the ye olde days, we used to judge all of the cars, and uh, it became time-consuming and so forth. And you'd be surprised. Um, most folks that have a car in the show uh, say, no, we don't, need, we don't need to be judged. You know, Focus your judging time on the cars that are really, really look good. So um, it, the judging uh, does, as Joel was mentioning, on Sunday morning. And uh, those classes, I would say, in most cases, uh, there aren't that many cars that are going to be in the top three because the other car owners are willing to say, look, you know, don't waste your time trying to judge my car because it's just not going to win anything anyway. And that's true of most of the cars at the show. They're, you know, they're not uh, don't-touch-me type cars. They're uh, cars like myself and Joel and, and a lot of other folks who bring their cars. And, you know, we don't care if somebody wants to open a door and look inside um, because we just – you know, we want to sh- we want to share our cars with uh, the folks that come to the show, and a lot of us just hang out with the cars and a- answer questions. I mean, my little Valiant station wagon, I can't tell you how many people go, oh, my grandmother had one of those, you know, type <laughs> or what, thing. Or so, what uh, that lady said in the parade. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I haven't There's told that story to too many people. In my head. <laughs> Until now. <laughs> you, you know, when I think of the history of this uh, show, Pat, uh, what amazes me is that, uh, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be, you know, 79 years old in November. Um, when I was a kid, uh, you know, I loved the old cars. But when you think about it, this show is 66 years old. So you, what is it, 1953? If somehow you were able to... Uh, at the time of the very first antique and classic car show, went to any of the new car dealers in our area and bought any vehicle off the lot, put it in your garage, and somehow managed to keep it, it would be a very viable show car today. Isn't that something? I think about the cars I had and could shoot myself for not keeping them. They were amazing. 
Do either one of you remember when you were talking about advertisement? What was the car that had the theme "Tiger by the Tail"? Do you? Do either of you remember? I do. Um, what was that? I'm thinking Pontiac, but I could be wrong. I have to look it up because you reminded me. I well, worked for the ad well, agency. Well, actually, Tiger. No, I, I'm sorry that. to interrupt you, but no, it, it wasn't an automobile. It was gasoline. That's it right. It was a tiger in your oh, tank. Was, tiger in your was tank. The, uh, oh. was the advertisement. And then yep. they actually, you could go, if I remember correctly, to some car dealers, and uh, I'm sorry, to uh, service stations, and you could actually get one of those pails, and yep. you could tie it and connect it to your uh, gas tank. Yeah, and have it You're hanging right. out. <laughs> right. You're right. I used to work so. for the ad agency that promoted that, and there were tiger tails all over the office. And um, I, I, God, that was a long time ago. I'm a year older than you, Joel, so I, that's how far we go back. Anyway, um, so Sunday's the big day, everybody. And, and as Chris mentioned, there are, what, 29 classes of cars? And they just range. I mean, the, the list of types of cars are incredible. Um, and the one I like the Best is they all modified vehicles. They have personalized stock hot rods, street rods, resto, which is restored mods and kit cars. Those are I love. They're they're just fun. They're, hey Pat, I, I have I have to mention a, a thank you. Uh, there back in the day, and you might remember this. And you you were either secretary of transportation. Uh-oh. Or commissioner of motor vehicles at the time. I mean, you felt every government role there is. But one of those two, because we invited you. When I say we, this was a different car club, the Chittenden County Cruisers. But those are the people with the modified cars. Mm-hmm. And at the time, at the time, Vermont inspection laws said you had to have a you had to have uh, you know uh, sound fenders on your cars. Uh, you know, this obvious, for obvious reasons, you know, the fenders rust on off and there's safety considerations, et cetera, et cetera. However, the modified street rods, a lot of those cars are designed without fenders and technically they would not pass inspection. So we prevailed, the, uh, the club members of the cruisers prevailed upon you to see if the legislature yep. could somehow change this or the Department of Motor Vehicles. And it was through your initiative that uh, this happened, that these cars, which are far more street-worthy than a lot of cars that are, are actually on the road, even though they don't have fenders, were now legal. And I remember joking when we uh, we invited you to our meeting, we yep. joked that we no longer have to make our own uh, inspection stickers anymore, thanks to you. <laughs> I think we have to do a shout-out to Dick Mazza, too, back then, um, Joel. Oh, he was behind um, this, yeah. Yep, he, yeah, he right. really helped us in the legislature, and the club gave both Dick and I, we ha- I had to get permission to, to keep it, um, a beautiful clock, and it's hanging in my I love me wall in my house. You know those I love me walls we all have, sort of. Um, but anyway, that was a wonderful, it was a pleasure to do that, because I love hot rods and street rods. I love going to that show. The colors of those cars are just amazing. That's great. So thank you for bringing that up. Hey, Chris, how many modified cars are on the uh, are part of the show this year? I know they have special exhibits at times. Oh, yeah, it, it's a it's a relatively new class for us. Um, up until I'm going to guess maybe five years ago, six years ago, uh, we didn't we didn't permit modifieds. Uh, we get a, a relatively if you ask me for exact number, I can't tell you that, but uh, we do get a relatively good number of modified vehicles. 
And the other area that we get um, quite an interest in is the antique race cars. And uh, we have a display of those every year. And last year we had we okay. must have had uh, 15, 18 okay, cool. race cars on the field in, in their own uh, display area. Yeah, it's very it's you know the show covers just about everything um, from the modifieds to um, antiques. Uh, yeah, it's it's all over the ballpark. You know, we have special uh, classes for sports cars, and foreign cars, and uh, you know is. Twenty-four classes are judged, so that's an awful lot of different, I look, uh, different I look types for the of little cars. red engine. Do you have little red engines there sometimes? And I love them. The wood on those trucks are—it's just gorgeous. They're gorgeous. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. I just love it. Yeah. Anyway, we have you to know, take another break. We, we we pre-register a lot of cars, but we also get a lot of cars that just come, uh, and you know maybe because of what we wanted to see what the weather was like. But uh, we get an awful lot of cars uh, that are not pre-registered. And uh, on Friday, you can park any way you want to on the field. But on Saturday, you have to be in the class class. that you are in. So uh, that's where you have to park. And you'll have a number, and you'll be in that class. So if it's all of the, you know, uh, let's say 56 to 65 Plymouth Valiants or something, they would be all in the same class. Excellent. So if you, you like Corvettes, you know, you go to the Corvette class, and there'll be tons of Corvettes. Oh, that's my husband's class. I'm here with Chris Barbieri and Joel Nagman. And, Joel, thanks for the commercial, the ad for the show. That was cool. You mentioned in the ad, uh, the, and I was going to ask you, what is brass error cars? What, what are they? Well, they are about the earliest that you can uh, get. Those uh, 1903 curved dash Oldsmobile, I remember there was one at the car show some years ago. Uh, that's when all the uh, accoutrements on the car, the lights, and uh, were made out of actual brass. The radiators themselves were made out of actual brass. And uh, those are the earliest, close to turn-of-the-century cars. Am I right, Chris? You are correct. Absolutely. It's, uh, you know, 1915 and earlier, uh, just about everything that was metal on those cars was brass. And that's why it's called the brass era. The the lamps, the the brass lamps on them? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's gorgeous. Pat. I'm a... a I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, Pat, I was going to just add, you know, over the years, I have been... You know, less, uh, you know, successful at restoring cars and getting resources together to do so. But I have had an incredible track record of finding cars. And if I can share one other yes, quick please. story, which is, uh, I think, quite amazing. Uh, it was, uh, go, let's go back to the early 1970s. And I was uh, taking someone touring through Vermont and uh, her family uh, she had more, uh, uh, her family uh, was of the Mormon faith, and I took her to the Joseph Smith Memorial, uh-huh. which is uh, in Sharon. He was born in Sharon, Vermont. Joseph Smith, the founder of uh, the Church of the Latter Day Saints, born back uh, in the early 1800s, and uh, somewhere I think on the anniversary of his birth in the early 1900s, they put this memorial obelisk and recreated his cottage house, and it's become a tourist attraction. So anyway. By driving up there, uh, we pass a farm, and there's this grizzled old farmer, and on his on his uh, property is a 1928 Model A Ford five-window coupe. 
um, and uh, it looked beautiful to me. And I said, I would love to have that. So I asked him if it was for sale. He goes, everybody asked me if they're going to sell it. I'm not going to sell it. I like that car. I've had it since 1928. It had a rumple seat that was taken out, and he had built his home, a homemade wooden, uh, you know, pickup bed replacing the rumple seat. It was really an interesting car. Well, it wasn't for sale, but I noticed that he had also a 1950 Ford panel truck, big metal panel truck, which, uh, you know, at the time was 20 years old. And my friend, one of my friends in radio, had the same car, and my friend's car was really in bad shape, and the rear door was rusty, and it wouldn't open, which made the truck useless because there were no side doors on it. So I asked him, um, would you sell the 1950 Ford panel truck. He goes, uh, no, no, I, that's the, even more important to me than uh, the Model A. That's more. That's my favorite of all my, my vehicles. And I said, would you be interested in a, in a spare? And he says, oh, I trade you the Model A for it. Anyway, make a long story short, I, I bought the uh, truck for, I think, $50 from my friend, traded it for the Model A. It is still in a fam- family member's garage. Oh, excellent! That, there's a book in there somewhere, Joel. I think so, and I could tell you other stories. I've uh, I, another family member has a 1933 Ford wood wagon, okay, a station wagon, a 1933 V8, uh, and it's the scarcest of the V8s. I'm told uh, of the of the all wood back of the car, and I had been delivering photographs, uh, pictures. Uh, for my father's photography business. Uh, back in the old days, you drop your film off at a drugstore and uh, then you uh, pick up the pictures later. And my father was the processor, and so I would deliver all the processed photos. And I passed by this, this garage, you know, frequently, and I saw this thing sticking out of a, of a, of a garage and it had a, a tarp over it, but it was square, so I knew it wasn't a car. Finally, one day I stopped and just took the liberty of picking up the tarp, and there was this 1933 uh, 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 wood wagon, station wagon. And I asked the woman, I said, uh, would you sell it? She goes, you know, you know, since my husband died, I've been trying to get rid of it. If you get it out, if you get it out of here, it's yours for free. Oh, wow. It still belongs to a family member. <laughs> so, that's, that's so great. That was in the Bronx, by the way, in the Bronx, on 222nd Street in the Bronx. Pat, I, I, I just want to um, make sure folks know that uh, we welcome folks to be to come and visit the show. And uh, spectators can uh, get in any day, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. It's $15 for adults and 12 and under are free. And the food is great. I just throw that out. People like food at fairs and events like this. So it's really good food. And the WDEV folks will be there all day, right? They're, they're there yeah. the whole time. And Joel, you yep, working? Right. You working for? Working well, I'll be playing. I'll be playing. I'll be playing music here on the air. All oh, car great. songs, all Saturday afternoon after the Garden right. Show. Then the uh, the dance right here on Church Street. We might mention it's a beautiful spectacle because classic cars line both sides of Stowe Street, and we kind of oh. dance in the middle. My friend Larry Brett and his uh, son Alex are. They bring the actual equipment and the music, and we just have ourselves a real party. So uh, even if you're not into a uh, 
a lot of dancing. The spectacle is something to see as the lights go down. So we we encourage that, and it's just going to. It's such a great show, and I'm just so honored to be a part of it. And we invite people to come on over. Any of the any of the three days for whatever time that you can, because uh, it, it is certainly you know a, a memorable event. And if you have an older family member that might not be so mobile, what a wonderful gift yep. to be able to take them and show them the cars of their youth. That's right. And we haven't even um, we've gone through the list of many of the cars that are there, but there are still more cars that we haven't touched on: military vehicles, emergency vehicles. A lot of them are for display only, as, as Chris had mentioned. You also have a new class. Maybe that's the one you were talking about. It's called Special Interest Vehicles. Um, yes, this is something new that we're trying. Um, special Interest, you know, you can ask five people what Special Interest means, and you're going to get five different answers. Um, this is an open class for, for folks who have a car that they think is unique, or special, maybe to them, or maybe you know more special as as a limited edition type car, to come and there'll be a separate class for that. Uh, it won't be judged; it's only for display. But we're we're welcoming cars that are over 25 years old, uh, or under 25 years old rather, to come to the show and uh, go to a special class of special interest cars. Oh, and I bet there's a lot of stories if you ask the owners when they're with their cars, right? They could tell you a lot. Oh, boy. <laughs> you know, the funny the thing I like about shows like this, car shows especially, is that if you walk around, uh, you don't hear people talking about politics or religion. <laughs> They're talking about cars. They're talking about exactly. uh, reminiscing uh, the old days and, and, you know, my grandma had this or so on. It, it's, it's just so laid back, refreshing, and all about cars and all about That's car great. history. Well, I thank you both very much for coming on the show. I can hear your enthusiasm, so I hope it's contagious, and I hope a lot of people go. It's a great show. I've been for many, many years, and um, we will we will see you there this weekend sometime. Have fun. Well, thank you so much. Tom Beardsley will be broadcasting oh. for WDEV from the 1931 official WDEV vehicle. Oh, thank you, Pat. excellent. I haven't seen Tom in ages. That's great. Good. All right, this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Stay tuned for Paul Costello. He and Sarah Jarvis have an amazing event that they're putting on tonight for the benefit of um, Montpelier, and they need you to participate. So please, please stay, stay on the show with us. In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. Hi there, this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Joining us in this second hour is Paul Costello, uh, who is a facilitator of an event that is happening this evening that you have got to participate in. Uh, he's also being joined by Sarah Jarvis, who's the president of the Montpelier Foundation. They're going to be talking about a forum on recovery and the future of Vermont. 
uh, and it's for anybody um, who lives, works, or cares about Montpelier and this state. So, um, uh, Paul and Sarah, welcome to the show. I'm so excited that, that we were able to get uh, get you on, um, and I will, uh, uh, I'm watching this guy who's, this is live, this is live radio. I'm in a, I'm in a uh, campground, and they're mowing the lawn on Thursday mornings, and I'm trying to stop him. So uh, <laughs> hold on. Okay, I'll well, keep talking, you. and hope to gosh you can hear me. So um, anyway, Paul, could you talk about this event and um, um, tell us what's happening? Yeah, thanks so much for having us on, Pat. It's great to be here with you. Um, you know that Montpelier is something of an epicenter for the, the flooding that happened on uh, in early July. Uh, the, the downtown has been devastated. A, a lot of homes uh, received water damage and had the cellars and, and first floor flooded. Um, it, it's really a disaster here, and people are, um, are are sad. There are people with serious grief about the losses that they've seen and, and uh, uncertainty about investing in the future and whether they can uh, bring their business back or whether their home is going to be, um, you know, how they're going to pay for the repairs on their home. Um, and then I think the, that people are looking forward and, and people want to not just respond today, but they recognize that there's, that this is a pattern. This isn't the first flood we've had and it won't be the last. And we want to think about being more resilient for the future and so the, there's a, a, a need, I think, in the community to, to put cards on the table and to think big. And our, our meeting tonight um, is really a, the start of a vision and action dialogue that was uh, the city council initiated a discussion to ask me to facilitate this. Um, and then the Montpelier Alive and Montpelier Foundation together, which um, are calling themselves Montpelier Strong in this, um, in the battle to raise funds to uh, support businesses and to build unity around recovery and resilience efforts so that we can be stronger together and, and maybe do more. Uh, and, and so this dialogue tonight, 6.30 at the Alumni Hall at the Vermont College of Fine Arts is, is a start to that, that discussion. I'm so excited about this, and I wanted to do a shout-out to a couple of people. I moved some things around on the show so we could get you on uh, before the event because I think everybody should participate. And as, as much as people are probably still knee-deep in, re in recovering, it's important to do this now where, where everything is obviously fresh on their minds and all the things that they could that they're thinking about that could be better, done differently, whatever. This is the time to, to get it documented. So um, I'm really glad. Now, you're going to have able to have people participate by um, uh, a live stream, correct? Yeah, the, it, Orca is running a TV live stream, and then there will be a Zoom option for people uh, at the Montpelier Strong website. I believe right. all that's listed. Uh, the city's also... Um, supporting this as a partner, and and so uh, there's information there as well. Um, but yeah, we want everyone to be able to participate as, as best they can, and we'll also record it 
and have it on YouTube through Orca so that people who weren't able to make it can can participate. And and kind of hear what was said so that they're geared up for the next phase of the process, which will be we're going to have the whole of the State House on the 22nd. Oh, that's uh, awesome. To meet meet in the House chamber as a community and then break into working rooms to dig much deeper into different content areas and things that are within the power of the public to drive forward. That's great. Sarah, I want to welcome you to the show, and, and thank you. We had uh, Katie Trouts on um, from Montpelier Live, and she was talking about uh, what you all are doing and how how much you've just stepped up and, and done such great work. So thank you very much. Are you uh, How involved are you going to be in tonight's uh, event? Yeah, thank you so much, Pat. I really appreciate that you're that you're covering this forum tonight and the, and the timeliness of it. Um, uh, I, I will be present. You know, Paul is Paul's the convener. Obviously, he's got a lot of experience with these kinds of community events in his in his past uh, professional career with the with the Vermont Council on Rural Development. Um, so, you know, my, my intent tonight is really just to be a listener um, at this event. Obviously, a, a, an ardent supporter of the process too. Um, this, you know, the first this first forum is uh, is tonight, and it's possible. We really want people to participate, but it's important for people to remember that there will be multiple opportunities. Right. Um, and you know, like like Paul said, the the forum that will be convened at the state house, I think, will be a wonderful opportunity for us to be together and to sort of you know own the people's house, as it were, and have a conversation there as well. But. The Montpelier Foundation and Montpelier Alive have a, you know, formed this very strong partnership in this, this moment of flood recovery. Um, it's really been a, an honor and a pleasure to be able to step into this role and, and you know, have these two strong organizations combined to try to um, help this community get back get back on its feet. And so, also our pleasure to be sort of the, uh, you know, the, the non-political sponsors of this community conversation, which is, is really so important at this point in time. Well, I, I uh, was very impressed, and I know um, a couple of people commented in writing in articles about how quickly uh, many of the organizations in Montpelier, particularly Montpelier, have turned on a dime mm-hmm. to become uh, recovery experts and uh it just jumped in as opposed to being, um, you know, particularly Montpelier Live with doing events and stuff, and they've just turned right around, and they're in the thick of things, and that's just amazing, so I really appreciate it. I also just laughed, Paul, because when I heard about this event, I went, but there's no breakout sessions? What's Paul going to do? And because you, <laughs> and you, and you are known for breakout sessions, and when you just mentioned the state house and that you're going to have breakout sessions, I don't know if you heard me laughing, but I was laughing. I thought, oh, good, that'll oh. that'll keep them busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it felt like the first meeting really should be, um, you know, uh, more, you know, less less about decisions, less about um, political differences, less about you know lining up for action about very specific things, and much more about what have we gone through, where are we at, what's the next challenge. What are what are yeah. some of the things that we want to stand for together as a community as we look at the next yeah. stage? And then you know it's only like ten or twelve days later that we'll get into, you know, what do we do about the Riverine corridor? What do we do about supporting um, business inventories outside of basements? Or what, you know, whatever the specific yep. issues are that come up tonight, we'll be doing some much deeper follow up with expertise from both within the community and beyond it at the next session. I, I would also just like to say. 
you know, Sarah has been terrific as the, the president of Montpelier Foundation. Montpelier Alive has been absolutely heroic. Like they, they had tents up the, the day after or the day after that and right. had four or 5,000 people over the course of weeks going through everybody's cellars and helping out everywhere in town. It was really like people say, you know, we didn't do everything we could have done or something in advance of the flood, but w- what a response. Yeah, um, it, right. It's really been brilliant, and um, yeah, they deserve tremendous sure credit. Yeah, would would definitely echo that, and you know, Pat, what you said earlier too—that that you know, the setting up the what they were calling you know the hub, that that location yep. at the corner of Barry and Main Street, where they popped up tents and there were you know volunteers there every day answering questions and organizing yep. volunteers and giving out food and water and just being moral support as well for those of us who just wanted to walk by and say you know what point us in a direction we need to you know channel our grief and and overwhelm the feelings of this what's just happened and um they they did a monumental job at that for sure and you know for an organization that has um talk about Montpelier Live now for an organization that has been really known for a lot of years for doing sort of you know events and niceties and beautification of the downtown which are all important things of course you know this they pivoted here towards being real just disaster recovery and uh kudos to them and their board and their executive director Katie Trouts for sure Mm -hmm. it was was a great show and I hope if people want to go on WDEV and and, uh, just listen to the show there's so much information I've also had um, the SBA on and the FEMA representatives on, and they're coming mm-hmm. back on to do an update because there's just so much going on. And I just hope people know what's out there and can take advantage because there's services that, that they will need, and uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of help out there. So Yeah, well, it, WDEV, you know, you, you guys stand for something, and yeah. you're like the... Absolutely. The heart and soul of of community radio, and and I've always loved that. But you know, you really all have stepped up in such a great way. Yeah, Yeah, and the news coverage at this time, both print and radio, you know, just just seeing how incredibly important it is to obviously not just get the information out there, but help us connect with one another. Because in a disaster like this, can really make us feel like we're alone and we're overwhelmed. And so to have a a voice in your ear or, you know, to read the words on the page about what other people are going through and about what resources are available, just so incredibly important. So yeah, echo. Thank you, Pat. Oh, well, thank you for all you're doing. Um, I always keep thinking about the children. They've just been through COVID, all the the stuff with the school and the isolation and working on a computer and they finally get back, and of course school's closed now. But then they have this happen, and, and yeah. there's nothing anybody can do. You just gotta gotta fix it somehow. And I can't imagine. Yeah, well, what the yeah a lot of schools are, are doing really some really nice um, reach out to their communities. I know my kid, my younger son is still in the Montpelier school system, and they they've reached out with a survey asking family uh, school families, you know what what have you been through and what have you lost and what support do you need? And then trying to stand up, you know, resources for them as well. But you're right. It, it's, it's quite devastating. There's also, there is also though in every disaster, of course, an opportunity for our young people to come together and to learn. Um, there's a, the, in Montpelier, they have a youth conservation corps and that's a group of high school kids who were really deeply involved in flood recovery for, for a month 
And, uh, you know, not that you ever want them to go through a disaster, but what an incredible experience those young people had to just see what it means to be part of a community, to help a community recover, um, and, you know, to to just see that that change is possible and that we can live through these terrible events. Paul, is there any way for people to um, participate if they're on Zoom, you know, put that little yellow hand up and... Somebody will call well, on them, or, or what do they? What do you want them to do if they've got ideas? I, I think we're going to find. Um, it, it depends on the crowd, you know. It, yeah. uh, I'm. I uh, as moderator, I'm concerned about chaos. You know, if there's 350 <laughs> people more than the room could hold, we will have a challenging time getting to as many people as want yeah. to uh, speak. But we right. do have. Um, a person who's running the Zoom, who's pretty sophisticated with this, who um, is going to be gathering the thoughts of people, and they'll be able to submit by through the chat, oh, um, chat. so that we'll be able to at least read their perspectives um, at different points so that we're capturing that um, as, as we go. Uh, and we're I'm not sure whether it's going to be possible to open up um, for them right. to speak from the screen. So we're, the... the College is actually mostly closed, and the there's not a lot of tech. But thank goodness for Orca and the great work they do. They're they're yep. um, super helpful in helping us lay, line up the, uh, the the AV stuff. That's great because I think as long as people, whether it's in writing or whatever, if somebody's listening, that will help. Um, do you have? Um, I know whenever you've done a facilitated a meeting, you've you've got some ideas in the back of your head that that you use to kind of keep get people thinking um do you have some suggestions um that you might throw out to people to to get them thinking in the right um i don't know if there's any right or wrong because people are just going to express a lot of emotion tonight yeah Um, usually we build that list of um ideas so that it's not about me it's really the stuff that comes from the community so in a way this is the meeting for people to brainstorm about the challenges they're facing today the longer-term challenge to resilience, and then points of vision for the future. So the whole dialogue will be people saying their part about those different issues. And we'll be be saving the Zoom to transcribe the transcription of the Zoom so we have all of this um, gathered together. But we'll also have note-takers who are looking at what are the nubs of this conversation. We also have a, um, uh, a way to... Which, which we'll talk about tonight for people to put into Padlet their ideas, and we've been advertising that. And in Padlet, we're getting, you know, several key ideas on the future. What we're going to do is gather that all together. We've got a citizen steering committee of about 23 people from all walks of life and all parts of the community that are listening, and they're going to get together and they're going to say, what are the, the biggest ideas that come from this conversation so far? And how do we then have a deep conversation on on what on the ones that seem to be the most powerful and the most engaging? And so at the State House we'll probably have eight to ten different focus forums with expertise and facilitators to dig deep in those areas. And in that session we'll be saying, okay, we're going to talk about um, you know making businesses or buildings downtown uh, more flood resilient what are the things that are actually in our power to do and what are the action steps right. that could come? So 
then we'll be going from a big, loose, brainstorming thing that's happening tonight to a very focused description of potential action steps that in the final step will be prioritized and planned and geared, and we'll look to say, well, is this something the city is naturally going to lead? Is this something that an existing nonprofit or working group would lead? Is this something that requires a new organization or new energy from citizen committees, or how do we make this one move forward? And so it's going to be a fascinating sort of sorting of big-picture ideas into action, and some of those things may also require funding. So we may say, you know, to replace, to get heat exchange units, and I'm, I'm just using this as an example. I don't know if it's a good idea. To get, you know, heat pumps for places that have to get their utilities out of the cellar, could we buy hundreds of them? You know, could we do a big public, could we raise funds to do something significant around that? And so, again, I don't I don't know what's going to come from this. Uh, and tonight's meeting is, is partly around the, those content things, but also for people to share their story. Um, yeah. We need to understand the challenges that other people are going through. And, and so for us, everyone who comes to these this meeting tonight is an equal. Everyone's got uh, something important to say, and we're going to be gathering, taking notes, um, ensuring that we capture um, the best ideas that come from the public so that we are geared towards action rather than just a uh, an open exchange of views. This could be very helpful to people to to be heard and just get it out. I mean, I'm sure the frustration and the anger and and the emotions of losing everything must just, I can't imagine. I, we have water in the basement. That's as far as ours went, and our, our street went out, but it, nothing, like nothing that compares to what these what people have dealt with is just just tragic. So it's a you good know, thing. I, it's a good thing to be heard. Yeah. I mean, I think there's sort of, it's interesting to, uh, you know, I, I went into, and I know Sarah's probably got a lot of experiences like this too. You know, I was, I was going to ride my bike to my community garden the morning after the flood, and, you know, it it seemed tough and everything, but I had no idea. And I rode out onto Elm Street and immediately realized people were pulling sodden couches and their children's yep. beds out of the house and dumping them. And yep. I couldn't keep riding. Um, and you end up going into people's homes that you don't know and going through their children's bedrooms, throwing away the books and toys, and uh, it, it it's like an incredible sadness. But everyone's sort of doing it. It's kind of like um, it's like a team that's doing this thing, and it, you don't feel the full emotion. And I I can just imagine what it's like to be a homeowner looking at that empty downstairs with the sheetrock ripped off and yep. the floor ripped up and wondering whether it's going to happen again. And all the the next weather projections we had where they say flash floods may occur and all this, and it, it's just exhausting. Yeah. And so for businesses, it's just as bad. You're down in the cellar cleaning out, of, uh, working with the owner and other volunteers, and the the owner says, this is, uh, this is the fourth 100-year uh, flood in my life. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not that old. Yeah, right. And right. so, you know, what do we what do we need to do now? You know, to support people wrestling with this recovery. But what also do we need to do to think forward to 
harden off some of the buildings. You know, and you look at some places that didn't flood because we they're more recently built and they may not have cellars and they've raised them up and they've put parking underneath some of the apartments and, and things like that. And uh, it's definitely a time where we need to adjust. Yes, exactly. And I was I was helping a friend in Barry. Um, the mud. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Yeah, you couldn't. It was mm. like lifting cement. And um, mm. it was just everywhere. I, I don't think I'm not sure that Montpelier got as much mud as Barry did, but um, it was that was just amazing. You, you had to be very young and very strong to deal with that mud, both of which I am not. Um, but anyway, I um, uh, are you going to have any presenters there, like from SBA or FEMA, or is Sarah going to speak, or is it just going to be the people? Uh, it, Sarah will welcome folks. And the the mayor and uh, and Katie from Montclair Alive will all be with us. But it's really about the people, and it's really about listening to each other and and thinking to, together. You know, in some ways, this is uh, the opposite of politics, um, where often people get together politically to push a point on one end or the other of the political spectrum. And this is for for all people uh, who care about Montpelier. Um, it's to think more about what binds us together than than right or left or anything else you know we we yep. we have common strength that's bigger than than the things that divide us we all need to learn from each other think big about the future but also like be there in support and i think this is a community that has really rallied together yep sorry to get emotional um but, no, I, well, but I think i, don't blame I you. think it is emotional you know it's emotional yeah, it for is. a lot of people so i'm hoping people will come and and listen, uh, really listen to each other. Uh, yep. Really try to appreciate the, you know, we're, we live in a troubled time where where the national discourse is so fractured and where right. we tend to get into partisan positions on everything. And it's, it's, this is a situation where we need to demonstrate real democracy, real faith in each other, and, yep. and the sense that there is still very much a common good. Sarah, can you talk a little bit about the Montpelier Foundation and what you all are doing? Because um, I think there's probably a lot of fundraising going on. <laughs> yes, there sure is. Thanks, Pat. Um, yes, so the Montpelier Foundation uh, is an independent nonprofit. Um, the organization was originally started as, as under the auspices of the city government, actually, to deal with donations that were made to the city for um, physical infrastructure improvements. But um, over time, it was realized that what donors were really looking for was a non-governmental entity to um, solicit and steward funds for community improvement. And so we primarily deal with brick-and-mortar projects. I'll be right back. Yes, I'm here. Sorry, I was... Uh, okay. Welcome to live, to live uh, okay. radio. Live radio, I, yeah, for sure. They're, um, they're mowing the lawn outside the RV. And I've asked oh, right, them several right, right. times to not do that, so the guy figured out where he was and he went away. So there you go. <laughs> Got it. Very nice. Sorry about that. So um, no worries. Yeah. So the foundation um, we fund uh, like physical Im improvement projects within the community. We've done things like help with the when the tennis courts at the high school needed improvement. We fund trails at the nature center. We um, help the tree board with trees in the community oh. and so forth. And 
Um, as as you know, we've talked about earlier in, in the really the days after the flood, there was uh, there was internal conversation of both Montpelier Alive and the Montpelier Foundation about how can we pivot quickly to react to the fund and help or sorry the flood and help with recovery and and knowing that we were stronger together, we the two boards connected and decided we would we would do this joint fundraising effort. Um, call it Montpelier Strong, which is what we are together. And, um, you know, and reach out to community members and, um, you know, supporters near and near and far. It's really been interesting to see, well, first of all, the volume of donations. Um, I think between the two organizations, we've had more than 2,000 individual donors. Um, so quite a, quite a few people and so many of them from out of state, which is really interesting to see. I think folks who have visited Montpelier or have friends and family in Montpelier who understand the importance of helping a, you know, a small capital with a, what do we say, small town, big heart, um, recover from a, from a devastating event. So fundraising has been fast and furious. Um, the boards of the two organizations have been very active in reaching out and then donors themselves really trying to, I think, spread the word and so forth. So together we have raised one and a half million dollars so far. Our goal wow. is two million. We're really trying to push to that two million marker. And as Paul talked about earlier, we'd love for the, um, you know, the last phase of our grants to be really focused on resiliency. We did a first round of grants uh, two weeks, just two weeks after the flood. We were able to get out. Um, almost half a million dollars to businesses in the downtown to help them with some immediate cash needs. We're just about to start a second round of grants. Um, we're just setting the criteria now for those grants and hope to be able to get out probably another at least half a million, maybe a bit more, and then do a third round, which, again, we can think about things like how do we help people move their utilities up you know, out of the flood right. range or, or things like that. So it's been an exciting process. It's been a, definitely a lot of work, but I'm so appreciative of the funds, of course, but also just the gesture of supporting the community and supporting the heart and soul of the downtown, which is our really small locally owned businesses. That's, I really thank you so much for for all your work and all the – how many folks do you have in your organization? Not many, right? So we, yeah, we're a nine-person board. We don't have any paid staff, um, so we've all been, you know, seriously, seriously working hard. Thankfully, we have a, a few board members like Paul that are retired and have, you know, some <laughs> some time to devote to this. But um, you know, it's really it's really been been a pleasure and felt really meaningful to spend this time and effort. You know, some of us who live a little bit up elevation-wise from the downtown and didn't get flooding. We have a little bit of survivor's guilt, you know, feeling like all these other people in the community were were touched and hurt by the flood. So, and, you know, we want to be in this together. So yep. to give our time, to give our effort, to give our, our funds, um, you know, it, it really feels crucial right now. That's really, we, this is an amazing state, and I've always said it um, on occasion, the politics uh, gets the better of me, but but when push comes to shove, we're all in this together, and um, yeah, we just love our state so and love the people. So that's yeah, a really yeah, great so thing. Yeah, so true. And yeah, and I think you know, I, I, I'm optimistic that, as Paul's saying, that these, these forums on recovery in the future um, can really be non-political. Um, and I yep. think it's it's it, it was you know nice. I think that 
city council wisely saw that it that was important for a non-governmental entity to to run this forum and have it really be not about you know what the city is or isn't doing uh, city government that is but have it really be focused on what have we been through the people of the city what do we need what are we looking forward to and you know what will help us prepare for the future Sarah, do you have any idea uh, about how many businesses may not be reopening may be Close on their doors. Do you have any sense um, of that? I yeah, so there's only been two. Of. There's only been two who are being um, who have you know stated specifically that they are not reopening, and that's Capital Copy on Main Street, and then Awe A W E on State Street. Um, oh. Those those two have said they are not reopening. Um, there there will likely be several others. Unfortunately, they just yep. haven't been vocal about it. Um, but yeah, for some, it's just the the losses are just too. Yeah, too much, too consequential, enough. and, you know, very, very few of them had flood insurance, um, and so they don't, you know, don't have a way to cover their losses and just can't see past yeah. to, you know, how could they reopen, frankly. Um, right. But that's, you know, that's the importance of fundraising for this is, you know, if we can just give them that next push to get them to, okay, to see that, okay, I can get through these bills right now and then, you know, look towards reopening in the, in the near future. And is uh, flood insurance, um, is it hard to get? Is it expensive? I mean, because um, I thought yeah, it's not the flood area, they required um, you to have it. Right. It's not hard to get. Um, it, it does have limits on what it will cover, and it also uh-huh. has a deductible, right? So there'll be an amount that isn't, even if you have flood insurance, Yep, right. if, you, if you have it, there's an amount that, that, that you'll have to pay out of pocket, and then the flood insurance kicks in. But it will likely, you know, one of the businesses, for instance, that I know that has flood insurance, it has, a, um, I think, a $100,000 limit on it. So she's right. lost quite a bit more than that in inventory, right. but she'll get partial coverage. Um, but oh. because of the expense of, of obtaining and maintaining flood insurance coverage, very few uh businesses had that kind of coverage and um you know their business owners they they will have business owners insurance policies but those don't cover flood damage right right. so So i I, on montpelier alive facebook or uh, website they have an aerial view of montpelier where the flooding is and honestly i have been through i think two floods um 1992 it was the the big one for me, and mm-hmm. uh, I was the commissioner of personnel at the time, and and it was nowhere near this area. I I was mm-hmm. shocked when when I saw the pictures because from the area you can see it's just everywhere, and I was wondering if if Paul is reaching out. I think it's important to make sure that there are representatives from each area because uh, that got flooded um, rather than. Not just the downtown because that's been tragic, but mm-hmm. other you know the residential areas and things because I bet each area has got different problems. Um, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, one of the the first decisions we made in partnering with Montpelier Alive, which is really the downtown organization, which normally right. concentrates on those downtown businesses, was that these grants weren't about downtown; it was about Montpelier businesses in general. And so we we opened that up and. You know, one of the first, uh, when we did outreach, um, we heard from about 150 businesses that um, 
that had been hard impacted. And when you think about that in this context of the state of Vermont, where the Agency of Commerce estimates that that maybe 800 businesses had very tough impacts. And there's there's ongoing impacts because people are losing money because they're closed or because the downtown sure. is kind of a ghost town. But the hard impact, you know, you think about Montpelier in the setting of the state, it's, you know, between 15 and 20 percent of the businesses affected statewide. We we really were an epicenter that mm-hmm. um, that that the Winooski just and the North Branch just kind of uh, hit us hard. And so uh, we are looking at that. And we're also, you know, as we look at the, the next steps of this, we want to be hearing from businesses and from homeowners, um, yep. from people who um, care and have expertise as well. And, and so we're, we're getting a lot of feedback um, already, but I, we expect tonight uh, to have a, a great mix of people in the room and on, on Zoom to, to share their perspectives. And didn't Montpelier just receive recognition as the best small city or town in the United States? I mean, something monumental. Yeah, our downtown got an award yeah, like that. Right. And you, you just look down there now and you you know, some people are walking around saying that that downtown Montpelier will never be the same. Oh and, yes, it will. And probably that's true. But uh, you know, we've we've come through tragedy and crisis before, and you know, it's like world history, right? You you build back better. You you look to the strength of the community. You look at the fact that 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 only a couple businesses are saying they're going to close, and the others are saying. We're gonna. We want to be here. Like this is this is um, our center. Um, I talked to a business that lost hundreds of thousands of dollars in inventory, and they don't want to move to a mall somewhere. They want to be in the heart of of Montpelier. And so, you know, it's it's inspiring, really, that there's something that binds us together as a community and that business people feel it, you know, they want to be here. Um, despite the fact that we need to, we need to think into these issues and, and, and uh, do everything in our power to help with the resilience of, of businesses and homes. Well, we may not be the same. We'll be better. And I think people will build towards that. I, I just know they will because we're Vermont strong, as they say, um, Paul, um, Sarah talked a little bit about the foundation. Maybe you can give our listeners, who I can't imagine they don't know the last name, but maybe a little hint about um, your background and why you are probably the best qualified to to uh, facilitate this forum tonight. Well, <laughs> that's nice of you to say. Um, well, I I, uh, I led the Vermont Council on Rural Development for 21 years, which is probably the lead organization that does community facilitation statewide and it's dedicated to neutrality. So we take on big issues um, like the future of the working landscape or the, um, the, uh, the future of our economy in a time of climate change. Um, so we don't shy away from big issues, but we bring together leadership and expertise from all sides of a product problem, including people who are, don't necessarily sit in the same room very often because of their political differences or differences around, you know, where they work. And, and, uh, and, and so we, we, we try to build unity and collective action around big picture directions, as well as at the community level, help the community identify what are the, 
you know, rather than think about what your problems are and building the problem list as long as your arm and then handing it to your board of selectmen and select women, you know, what are the things that you could do as a community to line up and drive for a better future? So we've seen towns all across the state uh, turn their, which have turned their backs to the river in town, like reopen that part of the town as a center for their future or address everything from childcare to um, improving their schools to beautification to building an, uh, an agricultural collective, whatever it is. We, we don't have a, an agenda to bring top down to a community and try to think we know better than the collective wisdom of people who come together across the board. And, and so in that spirit, you know, it's kind of like second nature to me to try to listen to people very hard and see what, the threads are, um, and then turn it back to the people based on everything that we collectively hear to, to set priorities for action. And then uh, because VCRD has, um, is connected to the congressional offices and to secretaries and state government and to the leading nonprofit folks that provide services to communities, we're able to rally those people to pay attention to a community that's going through a visioning process to then bring their services in support of the vision and action um, teams and ideas that come from the process. So in Montpelier, it will be fascinating to see, you know, where we go from the first meeting to the meeting on the 22nd at the State House and who we ought to invite in to who have resources, you know, maybe the Community Foundation or expertise, maybe, maybe uh, engineers who know uh, yep riverine corridors and what can be done to minimize some of the damage in future floods. I don't know what those issues will be before our meeting tonight, but we'll we'll reach out and, and bring some people in that have expertise not to talk down and build the plan for Montpelier, but to listen and work with um, residents, citizens who want to be part of an effort to frame the actions that can be taken now. So. To me, it's all about democracy and that, and trust that people um, people have the ability to think together across lines and set goals and priorities and take leadership. Um, and to me, democracy is all about stepping up, taking leadership, you know, taking power in your community to do good things that um, advance the community. And so, anyway. Uh, yeah, I've got a lot of experience uh, in this whole well, arena, for, and for all those I, I love years, it. You've, uh, you've done a great job. I have to talk to you sometime about what the meeting up at Johnson. I hear about that wherever I go. It's the strangest thing. So I'm going to talk to you someday. But I think that if, as people see things being done and accomplished that they've recommended, that will just energize people even more. Um, so I think it's important to obviously follow up and to let folks know that, that things are happening um, about what they've said. Um, I find when you're working with employees um, and you're trying to change a, um, the way you do business, if if you just keep slowly you know, if, inching away at, at the list and letting people know it's getting done, that they'll they get the energy to, to keep going. And this is a beautiful town and a beautiful state, so we've got to do everything we can to get her back. So thank you both for um, doing that. We have a, uh, about five minutes, and I, I just want to make sure we, we cover everything um, that uh, we should to so encourage people to come tonight. Um, could you tell us, um, we get the, uh, 
where do we get the um, uh, the, the Zoom link? Um, I can I can share right now that uh, it's at https colon <laughs> it's bitly bit dot ly oh. Montpelier slash Montpelier Forum one, and I believe it's on the website for Montpelier Strong the the Montpelier Alive side, right. and uh, the city has it. So if you look into the uh, if you look to the internet to the city and to Montpelier Alive, you should see it. Um, there's also posters all through town, and there's even a, yep. a meeting QR code on the poster. So you take a picture of that, and it will drop you into the into the meeting too. Oh, great. Um, so we we hope that uh, people have the opportunity. There's also been in the the paper uh, every day. There's an ad at uh, in the Times Argus, and yep. uh, we really appreciate what the Times Argus does for Montpelier. And um, so they're, they've done wonderful coverage. And there's the there's a link there as well for people. So I'm I'm, I'm hoping that you uh, both will come back uh, when this meeting is over and summarized, and because I'm I'm thinking there are people that are going to be in the dark about this because they've lost, you know, TV and computers and, and whatever else. And uh, maybe we could get the word out about what, um, what you've all accomplished. Um, and I cannot thank you both enough. I hope you will come back and keep us all informed. Um, I, have, I have a project that I'm going to recommend um, tonight that I'm, I'm very excited about. I'm going to do it myself. I want to get people to remember the old go-bags I don't know if you remember them back in, back in the mm-hmm. day. But I had a go-bag for years. I had no idea what compelled me to do that. But I stopped doing it as we, we do over the over the years. You just sort of stop. It wasn't being used, so, of course, we didn't do it. But I think go-bags are really important and will give you a sense of stability um, if you've got papers and, and stuff to get you through a couple of days. So I'm going to try to do something mm-hmm. with that idea. But anyway, thank you both very much. We will have you back on again. Please, please participate tonight and um, just be waiting to share how you're feeling and um, what you've experienced and maybe what uh, what ideas you have to make uh, this not quite so tragic again ever. Thank you. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Uh, see you next Tuesday. 